It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You know, some might think that being the brother of a well-known, successful sportscaster would make it easier for you. It might have helped open some doors, but once that door opened, you had to work even harder to keep your foot in the door. You weren't being compared to all the others in the business. You were being compared to the best. And hi, everybody. I am so pumped up for today's podcast. As joining me in just a couple of minutes is uh, a guy that has had an amazing career in sportscasting. Just amazing. We're going to talk with Steve Albert, the brother of Marv and Al. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you that today's podcast is brought to you by Roy's Umbrella. For all of your home loan needs, just go online, roysumbrella.com. Thinking of maybe purchasing a new home? Maybe you're going to take advantage of these low, low rates with a refi? Go with Roy. I've used him for a number of years. There's no tricks. There's no gimmicks. There's no hidden charges at the end. You're going to love the work that Roy does for you. Again, just go online, roysumbrella.com. That's roysumbrella.com. My guest today has had an absolutely unbelievable career. It started at a very early age, uh, being part of the Albert household with his brothers Marv and Al. Hard to believe that he's done play-by-play in 10 different leagues overall. He did boxing for 20 years, did some of the great fights that we have seen over the span of uh, those years. He's in the Boxing Hall of Fame. It is an absolute pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Steve Albert. Steve, how are you, sir? Hey, Grant. Great to be with you. First of all, I want to thank you for giving me something to do for the next half (laughs) hour or so. Between retirement, uh, you know, and the, the pandemic, I've basically been doing two things every day. Diddly and squat. <laughs> hey, you know, why are you retiring at such an early age? Your brother Marv, I mean, gosh, he's only, what, a year or two removed from age 80? And here you are in your early 70s retired. What a, what a slouch you are, man. Yeah, right, right. You know, uh, I stepped away from, from doing the, the Suns games a few years ago after, gosh, it was about 45 years in the business. I guess the, the traveling and, and the crazy lifestyle were the main reasons behind that decision. It, was, it, it seemed like a good decision at the time, they say. I, you know, I, I, I don't miss that kind of stuff, the traveling and everything, but I, I really do miss the friendships and the camaraderie and that natural high of calling the games. But, uh, you know, when you do something for so long, especially when you, you love doing it, of course you're going to, going to miss it. But I'm in a good, good place right now from a health standpoint and uh, – you know, knock on wood, doing a lot of good exercise and eating eating well. And uh, got myself involved in some interesting projects. Uh, I was able to uh, reconnect with my alma mater at Kent State University uh, uh, by resurrecting their, helping to resurrect their broadcasts. Uh, you know, and I went to, to Kent State, believe it or not, back in 1968. Uh, I went there really with the express purpose to start a hockey team because they didn't have one. And uh, I wanted to appoint myself the play-by-play announcer. So I had to start the team in order to do that because they were hiring pros to do the basketball and the football. So I figured if I start my own team, I can make myself the announcer. And it worked out well. In fact, we put four guys into the NHL, including myself. 
So it came full circle. I was able to make a nice little donation. And I was able to subsidize several players on the team with equipment. And we were able to reignite the, the broadcast, which had been dormant for many years. And now the kids are doing it live stream and with play-by-play and getting great experience. So, you know, pay it forward. It's helped out. You know, it's amazing. I went to college at Bowling Green, and when I got to Bowling Green, I was recruited there for lacrosse. So I went out there my senior year in high school, and Bowling Green was playing Ohio State in hockey, and I didn't even know Bowling Green had a hockey team. Not only did they have a hockey team, but they were a national powerhouse. Half of their team went on to play in the NHL. But, you know, you think about Ohio, you're not really thinking about hockey. But So you started hockey at Kent State and went there – that just had to be unbelievable, that entire process, which enabled you to get all that experience. It was great. In fact, when I was a senior, yeah, I started the team around 1970 as a sophomore. And when I got to be a senior, I was hired by the Springfield Kings to do some of their games. Whenever the Kings and the AHL would come in Cleveland to play the old Cleveland Barons down in the old Cleveland sure. Arena. Yeah, they, they first they bring in Joe Tate, who was the longtime oh, yeah. legendary voice of the Cavaliers. But Joe uh, couldn't make some games, so he got a hold of me. Uh, it's a long story, but uh, Joe was at Ohio University with my brother Al. Uh, Joe was like um, a graduate assistant when Al was a student in the broadcasting department. So he knew about me as well. So he knew I was doing games at Kent State. So when he couldn't make some games, he was – doing a little moonlighting aside from doing the Cavs. So he couldn't do the game, so he'd call call me to do the games. And it was a remarkable experience while you're in college to be doing the AHL. And I wouldn't have traded it for the world. But I remember Bowling Green at Kent, at, um, as far as hockey is concerned, they had a great coach there named Jack Vivian, who went on to become the general manager of the Cleveland Crusaders. Mm-hmm. And then I wound up doing the Crusaders games in the World Hockey Association. And uh, so, uh, and I went to some games there at Bowling Green. I remember seeing Ted Sater play, who yeah. went on to coach the Rangers. Yeah. And they, they did it. Oh, man, did they do it right? They, that was a first rate operation at Bowling Green. And we learned a lot from them and, and adapted it to our Kent State program. I had your nephew on a couple of weeks ago, and I talked to Kenny about what on earth it was like growing up with Marv as his father. But Marv was your brother, a little bit older, and Al. Take me back to your childhood. I mean, what on earth was that household like with you, Al, and Marv doing all of your announcing <laughs> yeah. as a kid? Well, you know, Grant, we were fortunate that, that the passion for play-by-play for broadcasting began at such an early age. And growing up with my two older brothers, Marvin and Al, who also love sports, obviously, I was extremely lucky to be surrounded by the sire to call games and be involved in sports. And, you know, for many kids, this would be a passing fancy. But for me and my brothers, we knew it was going to be a lifelong commitment. You know, I can't explain why, particularly at such an early age, we all wanted to be sportscasters. I only know that it seemed to be in the blood. It felt natural. It's all I ever wanted to do. There was no plan B. There was no backup. When I was about seven, Marv, Al, and I would go into this little room in our house in Brooklyn, and we set up a makeshift press box. The the room had a small black and white TV. We'd put on the Yankee game and turn down the sound, and we'd announce the game ourselves. And, you know, one would do the play-by-play, another would control the crowd noise with a sound effects record. And, the other would simulate the crack of the bat with two large price marking pencils <laughs> from, our, from our dad's grocery store. And after a few innings, we'd rotate so each of us could get experience calling the game. Uh, our parents would hear this through through the wall in the house and had to be wondering what the heck is going on in there. We, we didn't know exactly where this was going, but... We knew that we loved doing it, and, and we couldn't wait for the next day to get back to that make-believe make press box to do it all over again. But, you know, Marv, a uh, great brother who, who mostly led by example, and, you know, let's face it, I got to learn by being around one of the best. And, you know, some might think that being the brother of a well-known, successful sportscaster would make it easier for you, and for that matter, for Al as well. It might have helped open some doors, but once that door opened, you had to work even harder uh, to keep your foot in the door. You know, you, you weren't being compared to all the others in the business. You were being compared to the best sure. in the business. And, and that brought anxiety and pressure. And, you know, there were always people who were just waiting to pull you down because they thought it was handed to you. In any event, ambition, 
whatever you want to call it, perseverance, work ethic, overcame any obstacles. And I was blessed to do the, the thing that I loved for, for so many years. I didn't realize that you were also a ball boy for the Knicks because I know Marv was. Uh, what age were you a ball boy and what was that experience like for you? Yeah, yeah, wow. I was a ball boy during high school, my my sophomore, junior, and senior years. And uh, Marv was the radio play-by-play announcer for the uh, for the Knicks at that time. So he was way upstairs in the gondola at Madison Square Garden. I was way downstairs on the bench handing out towels and water to people like Willis Reed and Howard Comives and wow. people of that ilk. And, you know, it was amazing. It was from 1965 to 1968. And then I went off to college at Kent State in Ohio. And it, it's a crazy story. I don't know if you have time sure. for this, but it connects with the, the ball boy situation. In 1970, when I was a sophomore, riots broke out you know, on campus and in the town of Kent in protest to the escalation of the Vietnam War by President Nixon. Then the Ohio governor sent uh, the National Guard uh, to the campus. And then on Monday, May 4th, I was on the campus attending a class when the Kent State shootings took place where four students were killed and others, you know, were injured. There was a rally scheduled for 12 noon during which time the shootings took place. And it all happened while I was still in class. It was a child psych class, which lasted for two hours. Had that been a typical one hour class, who knows? All bets are off. I, I could have either been walking back to my dorm or to another class right near the shootings. Anyway, in the classroom watching a film and in the film a baby's crying loudly but outside we can hear sirens mm. it turned out there were several ambulances speeding by and coming on campus obviously something bad was going on but nobody knew what it was exactly we ran out of the classroom and the building and it was grand it was like one of those old black and white science fiction movies where people are running from some monster so i started running Back to my dorm, when I got there, the PA system was blaring, get the hell off the campus, wow. grab your belongings, get the hell off campus. I got up to my room. I just swept some things out of my drawer into a little satchel. This is like out of a out of a bad movie. And I grabbed my Kent State jacket, and me and my three roommates in a frantic scene of bumper-to-bumper traffic, we hitched a ride to Akron, where one of our roommates lived and he then drove us to the Akron Canton airport. I couldn't call home because the lines waiting to use the pay phones were extremely long. You remember those pay sure, phones. Sure. Yeah. Remember this is before cell phones. Yeah. The, the airport was packed with students trying to get out of there. Finally, I got a flight to Newark airport and after a series of planes, trains and buses made it home to Brooklyn that night, I walked in the door at 7 PM. You know, my parents obviously relieved, but here's where the tie in with, with, with the Knicks comes. The next day, Knicks trainer Danny Whalen mm. invited me to sit on the Knicks bench as an honorary ball boy for Game 7 of the 1970 NBA championship. Oh, come on. The Lakers. Oh, yeah, my May gosh. 8. Wow. It's unbelievable. It's like a Forrest Gump. Wow. So I went in a matter of days from one of the saddest, most tragic events in American history to one of the most mm. joyful, if not the most iconic moment in New York basketball history. That was the night Willis sure. Reed hobbled onto the floor. Yeah, at the Garden, helped the Knicks to the 70 NBA title. And to be in the locker room watching Willis get injected in the thigh mm. to to numb the pain and see him walk into history just after being at, at Kent State, it was absolutely surreal. And just before Willis came out, the Knicks and the Lakers were warming up. I mean... I remember this like it was yesterday. The crowd had assumed that Willis was out. He wasn't going to play. But when he limped out, I mean, it was deafening. The building was vibrating. When he hit his first warm-up shot, the crowd got even louder. I was standing near half court along the sideline adjacent to the Knicks bench. I was holding a bunch of warm-ups, and I looked over to my left where the Lakers were warming up. They all stopped in unison, mm. turned toward the other side of the court, and just watched as Willis made his shots, and the noise level got louder and louder. I looked at the eyes of Will Chamberlain, Jerry West, Elgin Baylor. I mean, I was standing just a few feet away from them. I remember saying to myself, this game is over. Wow. It was one of the greatest psych-outs in sports history, but Grant, I'll remember the dates May 4th and mm. May 8th for the rest of my life.
You know, you, you talk about Game 7 in that 69-70 season. You talk about Ali Frazier fighting at Madison Square Garden. I was there in 1994 for Game 7 of the Rangers' Stanley Cup victory over Vancouver. Do you right. think, do you, do you put Willis coming out onto the floor, first Knicks championship, 69-70 season, as you said, against Wilt, against West, against that Lakers team. Do you put that as the greatest moment ever in the history of Madison Square Garden? I, I don't think there's any question. I mean, Messier in the 94 Rangers is right up there, maybe number two. And and then you've got Ali Frazier, you know, at, at the Garden. But I think number one, I think if you took a poll amongst people who – were alive and well during that period of time, they would vote, and I would probably also contribute to that vote for Willis hobbling out onto the floor as the number one iconic moment in Garden history. Your career as a boxing announcer has been phenomenal, so much so that it puts you into the Boxing Hall of Fame. And you did the Holyfield-Mike Tyson bite fight. Take me back to that scene, you doing the play-by-play, and how quickly it was that you realized what was going on and, and, and the interchange that you had with the analyst. And uh, uh, what on earth must have that been like from your perspective? Well, thanks, uh, first of all, for mentioning the Hall of Fame. But the buildup to the bike fight that was June of 1997 was, of course, enormous. Uh, following uh, Holyfield's upset in uh, the first fight, an 11th round TKO, um, and Holyfield became a, a boxing legend that night. But I was always more on edge before a Mike Tyson fight, uh, Grant, because you just never knew what to expect from the guy. He, he was so unpredictable. You know, you always had it in the back of your mind that he was going to do something bizarre to really throw you off your game. Well, the night of the rematch, I seemed to be on edge more than usual. I, I remember walking from my hotel room at the MGM Grand in, in Las Vegas to the arena, I had this feeling in my gut that Tyson was really going to do something strange. No, Nobody could have foreseen what was about to happen. We all know what took place that night in the third round. Tyson uh, bit off a piece of Holyfield's uh, ear, and, and I was basically announcing in disbelief. Obviously, this was something I'd never seen before. It's something you just can't prepare for as a as a play-by-play or a blow-by-blow announcer. But but I remember thinking to myself, I was right about Tyson pulling off something bizarre. But believe me, biting off a chunk of Holyfield's ear was the farthest thing from my mind. So I tried to just keep my cool under very frenetic circumstances and try to just describe what was going on, even though it was extraordinary. And then, of course, after Tyson bit Holyfield for a second time, the referee, Mills Lane, disqualified Tyson, and then it was just chaos in the ring as Tyson tried to go at Holyfield again, despite the fact that the ring was now full of security people. It was packed. But now Tyson was just swinging randomly at anybody. And again, I had to describe this extraordinarily bizarre scene on top of the fact I had just called not one, but two bites of Holyfield's ear. It was absolute pandemonium and you know at the time it turned out to be the highest rated pay-per-view event all time for sports or non-sports i even remember that on monday the, the fight was saturday night and a couple of days later monday the president bill clinton at his press conference the first question to him in the midst of who knows how many world events going on at the time Mr. President, did you see the fight? <laughs> and, and, and much to my amazement, Mr. Clinton said, yes, I watched. First, I was amazed they had pay-per-view in the White House <laughs> at that time. And second, I couldn't believe the president of the United States watched it. And then he said he was horrified by it. And I was just relieved he wasn't referring to the broadcast. <laughs> but, right. Oh, but man. anyway, that was quite quite a weekend. You have had the pleasure of doing so many great events we said you know play by play in 10 different leagues but is there anything quite like having an assignment for a championship fight and you have done so many of them is that the cream de la creme for you i think so it's almost like being in right in the middle of a major motion picture you know without a script 
But I think a a world heavyweight fight, especially one like Tyson Holyfield, the circumstances that presented itself leading up to that fight after the great first fight, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like you know you're really under the microscope, under the spotlight. I I, I was very fortunate, uh, Grant, to do around 300 or so world championship fights in about 23 years at Showtime. Um, there's no question that the, the bite fight stands out as the most memorable, but I think the the most dramatic and exciting fight was one that took place in 2005 between a fighter named Diego Corrales against Jose Luis Castillo. It was, it was unbelievable. Um, in all my years in boxing, it was, it was far and away the most compelling fight I ever had the privilege to call. It was one of the greatest and most memorable fights in boxing history. Coming back from two knockdowns in the 10th round, Corrales, I, I've never seen anything. He, he took determination and competitive drive to new and unimaginable heights. He, he, he made an astounding, astonishing comeback and won the fight. And it just reverberated throughout the entire world of boxing. But to capsulize your the answer to your question, you are correct, sir. There, there is nothing like a, a world heavyweight championship fight. That takes the cake. Did you, Marv and Al, used to practice boxing? Because, I mean, Marv and, you know, the fight doctor and all the fights on NBC Sports World and Al and, of course, Kenny does boxing. What is it about the Alberts and boxing? Well, we uh, just practiced by beating the crap out of each other. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, whatever yeah. works, right? <laughs> whatever works. It started out with pillow fights and then <laughs> escalated yeah. to bare knuckle. Bare oh. knuckle. And, and my mother was the Mills Lane of the house. She broke it up. But was she able to stop it as quickly as Mills did in, in many fights or that's, what? That's right. Now she would chase after us with a, a you know one of those wooden spoons <laughs> and and threaten to uh, uh, the big, the worst threat was wait till your father gets home oh, that was yeah that was the worst threat and then we just stopped everything because we knew what we were going to get from him oh boy hey I always yeah. tell the story of being at Madison Square Garden for my first ever NBA game when Sacramento was playing the Knicks. And like a lot of kids in my generation, we grew up idolizing Marv. And I used to actually record the Knicks and Rangers games and then bring the highlights into homeroom before the bell rang in junior high school. But that 1988 game that I did at Madison Square Garden, when I'm sitting on the floor and I look and three seats over to me is Marv, was just surreal to me. And, and the reason why I'm bringing that up is you called the last ABA game, the Nets and Denver, again, the final ABA championship, and you're announcing and you look over and Al is calling the game for the Nuggets. That's really beyond special, is it not? <laughs> I don't know what's nuttier to look over and see Marv or to look over and see Al, but, you know, I kind of got right. used to that. Right. That's nice that you <clears throat> that you bring that up. But, yeah, no, I'll never forget that last ABA game. The Nets beat Denver. It was 75-76. I was announcing for the Nets. It was uh, game six, Nassau Coliseum, Long Island, and the Nets came back from being down like 22 with about 17 minutes to go, beat the Nuggets 112-106 to win the uh, championship. Great game for a guy named Super John Williamson. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, he had had a big uh, second half. Dr. J had uh, 31-19 rebounds. But the thing I remember most about that night, and you alluded to it, I'm I'm sitting on the far left side of the press table adjacent to the Nets bench doing the TV broadcast. My brother Al was doing TV for the Nuggets, and he was sitting on the far right side of the press table next to the Denver bench. And when the final buzzer sounded, Nets fans stormed the court to celebrate the title. And out of respect for me the Nets announcer, the hometown guy, they sort of circumvented the table. They went around <laughs> the end of the table and and then onto the floor to celebrate. But down at, at the other end, I'm laughing now, it wasn't funny at the time, but down at the other end, they stampeded over and through the press table <laughs> and just obliterated my brother, Al, <laughs> right. completely ripping off his headset mic, Phone lines are going all over the place. Jeez. His, his TV monitor 
all of his stats and notes are just flying up into the air. And I saw him standing. He climbed to the top of the table for safety. And, and he had nothing left but his clothes on. And, <laughs> wow. and they were even ripped and tattered, ripped apart. And he had this look on him, this helpless look on him, like, what just happened? It was like a swarm of bees just went through him. And needless to say, his broadcast was was cut off. And he never even had a chance to sign off and wow. say goodbye. And keep in mind, that's the last ever ABA game. Meanwhile, I got to throw it to my partner, a gentleman named Bob Goldshaw, uh, in the victorious Nets locker room where the champagne was flowing. And it was a night I'll never forget. Of course, the following season, the Nets were in the NBA. We were, I went into the NBA. I was very, very fortunate at a very young age because the Nets went into the NBA, and thankfully they kept me on. But it was unfortunately minus one very, very important ingredient. Dr. J, who who went to the 76ers mm. as part of the price the Nets had to pay well, to get into the NBA, along with Denver, San Antonio, and Indiana. But th- those Nets years were amazing. And, I mean, I announced for the Nets, the Nassau Coliseum, when they were the old New York Nets, ABA, then in the NBA at the Meadowlands Arena in East Rutherford, New Jersey, and in Piscataway at the Rutgers Athletic Center, 9,500-seat arena while they were getting the Meadowlands ready. So it was a wild run with that team. Some lean years, but, you know, I look back and remember happy times with that organization. Speaking of happy times, I want to take you back to 1979. You're doing the Islanders, the home games in 79-80. I went to college with Kenny Morrow, and we all know he, yes. went, he went from the Miracle on Ice, and a week later, right. he's playing for the New York Islanders and ends up winning the first of four Stanley Cups. But I go back to that that team with Dennis Potvin and Clark Gillies and Brian Trottier and the tough guy Bobby Nystrom, and you're doing the home games for the start of their legendary run of four Stanley Cups. That had to be an amazing time in your life. You know, uh, Grant, that... 79-80 season was really intriguing on many levels, but it wasn't so much a magical regular season, but obviously it was a magical run of the Cup. As you mentioned, I was calling the home games of the Islanders at the Nassau Coliseum, and Tim Ryan, great hockey announcer, and also a great boxing announcer, was doing the away games. The Islanders, you may recall, were coming off the disappointment the previous season of losing to the Rangers in the playoffs, and they did not have a very good start to the regular season in 79 and 80. So nobody was really thinking Stanley Cup at this time. They, they started to get things going after the new year. The acquisition of Butch Goring from the L.A. Kings sure. was key. Plus, and you, and you hit it right on the head, the addition of Kenny Morrow, who was coming off the incredible gold medal winning U.S. hockey team experience, the Miracle on Ice. He had that great career at Bowling Green. If you look at the Islanders' regular season record that year, again, it wasn't anything spectacular. 39, 28, and 13, 91 points. But I, I don't remember that off the top of my head, by the way. <laughs> no, I, I could tell. I actually wrote that down. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm not that smart. But I, I recall Coach Al Arbor entering the season put more emphasis on the playoffs than the regular season. I mean, that, that turned out to be genius. Mm-hmm. That was that was pretty good, but but what a team. Trottier, Brian Trottier, Mike Bossy, Clark Gillies, as you mentioned, Dennis Potvet, Billy Smith, Chico Resch, great coach Al Arbor, great GM, Bill Torrey. They got to the Stanley Cup Finals for the first time in franchise history after getting by the Kings, the Bruins, and the Sabres. Then they beat the Flyers in the Finals for the Cup, and that memorable goal by, by Bob Nystrom, the thing is, as I recall, the networks, the TV networks took over during the playoffs, so I didn't really get to call those great games down the stretch, but it was fun to, to just be in the Coliseum, to be a, a part of that euphoria at the end. You know, who knew? I mean, it's a tremendous finish. Who knew it would lead to three more consecutive Stanley Cups? But I was living in a little apartment complex in Westbury, New York, right across the street from the Westbury Music Fair. Sure. I was living there for, for several years, and I remember never, ever once going across the street to see somebody at the Westbury Music Fair. I was always so busy with doing, huh. doing play-by-play. But in any event, I was living in the same complex with Bob Nystrom. We, 
we used to hang out, uh, he and his wife and I at the pool, which is great. So I got to, you know, know these, yeah. know him as a regular person. And also my neighbor directly next door to me was Gary Howitt. You remember him? Oh, yeah, I sure do. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, li- little guy, but feisty. Oh, yeah. Very uh, feisty. Hey, I, I, I got a story for you. I used to 10 bar at the Woodbury Pub when I was home for college. All right. And I went to college right. from 77 to 81. So I'm tending bar at the Woodbury Pub and in, walk, in walks Bob Nystrom one night. And right. he ended up coming there on a fairly regular basis. What a great guy, Bobby Nystrom. And then, you know, my, my, my one of my best friends, George McPhee, George and Bobby Nystrom had some of the most amazing fights that I've ever seen, ever, in all my years <laughs> yeah. of watching hockey. But, boy, Bob, but you know, Bob, you were just talking about Bobby Nystrom, number 23. What a great guy he was. I used to love talking to him when he used to come into the pub. What, what a great guy. He, he was a very, very engaging, personable guy. You know, it was like, oh, like talking to your long-lost friend whenever you yep. see him, always smiling. Yep. A great personality, and you know, I think the fans got wind of that, and and you know, they the fans embraced the guy. Everybody on that team had great personalities. Uh, Clark Gillies was one of the greats. Mm-hmm. Chico, one of the nicest people, went on to become a a broadcaster himself. But uh, Gary Howitt was you know a very quiet guy. He was the toy tiger they used to call him, but he was a tough, scrappy player, quiet as I mentioned off the ice which was fine with me because who wants a noisy neighbor? I mean, you know, <laughs> sure. But he, yeah. he was, he was one of the most popular Islanders. In fact, I believe an original Islander from the 72 team. I found out too late. Ironically, I learned that how it had been living in Phoenix where I was doing play by play for the Suns, And you know, who knows? He might've been my next door neighbor again, because it was awfully quiet next door, so maybe it was. <laughs> maybe he was. That is beautiful. Yeah, so that's, yeah that's, that's my great. Islander story right there. You know, I'm convinced. I always tell people this. The top-of-the-line announcers, could you could announce two dogs running across your front yard. And I, I look at your resume and some of the offbeat stuff you've done. I think you did. You call Robbie Knievel's uh, motorcycle jump at Caesars. You've done, I mean, you've done all kinds <laughs> of oddities, haven't you? I mean, but what was that like? Because, I mean, gosh, Robbie Knievel, the jump at Caesars Palace, I mean, how on earth do you announce something like that? Well, perhaps the oddest thing I ever did, honestly, there were two things that come to mind. First was tennis on radio. Try that sometime. <laughs> right. <laughs> tennis on yeah, radio. The, wow. Yeah, tennis on radio. I announced for the Cleveland Nets of World Team Tennis <laughs> in the early to mid-70s. Believe it come or on. Not. The Cleveland the, Nets on radio? Cle- oh, my gosh. Yep. That's yep, beautiful. That was a challenge, Grant. Yeah. And as you mentioned, the other thing. <laughs> That's amazing. The other thing, though, was calling Daredevil Robbie Knievel's motorcycle jump over the fountains of Caesar's Palace in Vegas. Now, you recall his father, Evil Knievel, who broke just about every bone in his body. Right. Was famous for his jump over the fountains. But this was nationally syndicated on cable. And I recall I had to be prepared for three possible scenarios. One, that he'd clear the fountains without a scrape. Two, that he'd crash but survive. And three, heaven forbid, he'd lose his life. Talk about bizarre. Wow. wow. Thankfully, he cleared the fountains without a hitch. But what a wild experience. Mm. And Evil, Knievel himself was a part of the broadcast, and he was really fun to work with. He was a, he was a good guy. So that, that was wild. How did you get into the movie I Spy with Eddie Murphy? How did that come about? The director, Betty Thomas, who starred on that on the hit TV show Hill Street Blues. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, sure. It's a great show. Yep. With Ed Marinaro, was a boxing fan. And she brought me and my Showtime broadcast partner at the time, Bobby Chez, former middleweight champ, in to call the fight scenes involving Eddie Murphy. It was a movie filmed in Vancouver, British Columbia. Eddie played a, an international spy who was a prize fighter as a cover for being a spy. Tell you what, he was he was very kind and generous to us. Great experience. It pops up every once in a while on TV. It's fun to see. I had a, I had a blast doing it. But they, I remember the funny thing about it is the first time we reported for duty was on a cold February morning in Vancouver. We had to go to this arena, which was supposed to look like Budapest Hungary. Mm. And it was dark and dank in there. And 
So we meet up with Betty Thomas, the director. Betty also had come off directing Private Parts, the Howard Stern movie. And so she was starting to gain some traction as a director. And she was wonderful. But anyway, she said, she says to me and Bobby, okay, guys, you, you, you got all your lines down. You're set. You're ready to go. You memorize all your sides, as they say in, in, in movies. And I said, yeah, we're ready to go. We're like ready to go through a wall for her at this point. And she goes, good. Rip up everything. And I just want you to call the fight as you see it. I don't want you to go on the script. Oh, my God. And we're, Bobby and I look at each other and we go, what? You want us to do what? And because we had memorized right. all these lines. Right. And like, so completely sent us into a uh, frenzy. But it turned out she knew what she was doing. We basically just, it was Eddie Murphy in the ring with another actor and who was playing a boxer. And they had like five or 6,000 extras in the, in the stands as fans. And they made it like a real fight. And, and Betty said to us, look, I know you guys do this for a living. You call fights. It's all, it's all ad-libbed. It's all spontaneous. This is what you do. So that's what we did. And we, we got just about everything in one take every time. It was great. And not to pat myself on the back, but we got lucky. And Eddie just couldn't, couldn't have been more kind and generous to us. And it was a remarkable experience. I got lucky. I was fortunate to appear in a few movies and in, in some sitcoms, playing myself mostly voiceovers. Did an episode of Sex in the City, playing, of all things, the Knicks announcer. And did a bunch of shows like that. The fringe benefits of the business. Hey, at, at least you didn't lock yourself in the bathroom in Vancouver. Hey, wait a minute. Where'd you hear that? Yeah. You know, I hear it um, all. I hear it all. Well, so, Tom, you, you got to. So, how the hell do you lock yourself in the bathroom at a, at a radio station in New York? You are on top of things here. I, I was I was doing morning sports on WABC Talk Radio in the mid '80s, and I lived in a, a, a town called Fort Lee, New Jersey. Sure. And I had to drive into Manhattan, you know, every morning, Monday through Friday. I had to get up about 3.30 in the morning to do the sports, sports updates. Well, one very cold winter morning, I got up, as usual, went into the bathroom, took a shower. But when I went to open the bathroom door, it was loose. The doorknob was loose. So I kept turning the doorknob, and it was just spinning <laughs> around. The door wouldn't open. And, and to make a long story short, I, I started, or longer, I started to break into panic mode because, hey, I, I, I desperately needed to get out of that bathroom and onto the George Washington Bridge. And this was well before cell phones. So I couldn't call anyone. Besides, it's now 345 in the morning. So <laughs> oh my gosh. I grab a big aerosol can of hairspray and I start pounding on the door, which was very solid. But little by little, I'm creating a hole in the middle of the door. <laughs> Eventually... I got the hole big enough to crawl through, but when I got halfway through, I got stuck. Come on! Yeah, this is—it's like something out of the, out of <laughs> Laurel and Hardy. Remember, all, all I have on is a towel around my waist. Oh now, my God. it was easier. I'm trying to negotiate this as I'm stuck. It was easier to slide back than forward. So I get, I get back into the bathroom. I pounded harder with the aerosol can on the door make the hole even bigger. I finally got through it, but now I have pieces of wood shavings in <laughs> places <laughs> oh my of my body I didn't know I had, Grant. <laughs> I, so now I hurriedly put on my clothes. I drive like a madman over the George Washington Bridge, over to WABC Radio in, in the city. I was late, and I missed the first sports update, which was, I believe, around 5.45 a.m. The host a guy named uh, Alan Combs, who was also a stand-up comic, asked me what happened. I mean, he could see I was totally disheveled. <laughs> so I told him the whole story, and he said, okay, forget the sports this morning. you got to sit down here in the studio with me all morning and tell this story. <laughs> and wouldn't you know it, listeners were ringing the phone lines off the hook. They're coming out of the woodwork <laughs> with stories of their own about getting locked into rooms in their home. Oh, my gosh. And, yeah, and it turned out to be one of the funniest, highest-rated shows they ever had on the station. And it was a happy ending after an extremely nerve-wracking experience. And to this day, some 36 years later, I always bring my cell phone into the bathroom. <laughs> you, 
You never know. Hey, you never, ever know. You know, as we wrap this up, I'm thinking about all of the great moments in your broadcasting career. How many different leagues, how many different events, championship games, some of the greatest fights that we've seen. Was there ever an event that you always wanted to do that you just didn't get the chance? Wow. Yes. Yes, it just it just hit me. The Puppy Bowl. <laughs> the Puppy Bowl, huh? All right. Yep. Well, there you go. Yep. Hey, did you yeah, you I never know. You right. you never know. I mean, gosh, you you still have time. They may call you one of these years. Hey, I have a lot of experience now cuz I own a Super Doodle. Perfect. So. You're perfect for it. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I would love to do play-by-play for the Puppy Bowl someday. All right. If they ask you, can I be your analyst, please? I'll do a lot of homework. I'll study, and I'll be on with you. How would that be? Absolutely. And you can you can negotiate the deal. You can be my agent and get the usual <laughs> 95% that I gave to all my other agents. <laughs> hey. Oh, my gosh. I, I wish we had more time because we didn't even get into you working with Ralph Kiner and Bob Murphy. I can't even imagine what that was like through all those years with the Mets. But it, it's so much fun to reminisce with you. I just uh, – listen, I'm not saying this other than it's true. You are such a great person. I always used to love talking to you when uh, I was in Phoenix or you were in Sacramento and uh, when Al was doing the Nuggets and getting – to know him and I, I would I tell people this Steve and I really mean this had it not been for Marv had it not been for growing up in New York I would have never been a sportscaster I got into this profession because of Marv because of listening to him do the Knicks when we couldn't watch the games on TV in the late 60s and I, I was just glued to the radio every single night for both basketball and hockey and Kenny is just the nicest most amazing person uh, the last name Albert great people and I cannot thank you enough well, you're the best, Grant. Thank you so much. We really appreciate that. I, I owe it to my parents, and we all owe it to our parents because they were uh, wonderful, down-to-earth people, and they provided us with a great way to look at things, a great work ethic, and I thank them dearly, and thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Man, that was so much fun talking with Steve. I hope you enjoyed that as much as me. I could have talked to him for hours. Hey, I want to tell you that today's podcast is also Brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Big news. Manscaped just released their new cologne scent to help you feel good and smell good all over and at all times. Hey, who knew smelling this good could feel this good, too? Manscaped is now trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. Hey, join the movement for all your below-the-waist grooming needs. Now, everyone knows Manscaped has the perfect package 3.0 for all of your below-the-waist grooming needs. But they didn't stop there. Complete your grooming game with the new refined cologne signature scent by Manscaped. With the same signature scent that's in all Manscaped formulas, this cologne is a perfect complement to the collection. Light, approachable, folks, it is gentlemanly in all the right ways. Now think of this as your wingman for the night to keep you fresh and ready for anything. And a beautifully designed glass bottle makes a statement and the manly scent is attractive to set the mood. Now, folks, also be sure to check out the Perfect Package 3.0 with all of the essentials for your below-the-waist grooming needs, including the Lawnmower 3.0 trimmer and crop formulations. Folks, it's very simple to get all of these products. And we talk about the new Manscaped Refined Cologne to complete your set and smell great anywhere. Well, folks, yeah, it's time to feel sexy. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code NAPES, N-A-P-E-S, at manscaped.com. That's right, manscaped.com, NAPES, N-A-P-E-S. Your balls and body will thank you. Again, just use the code NAPES, N-A-P-E-S, 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Look good, smell good, feel good with Manscaped. Hey, it is now time for Crowd Ultra Question. Crowd Question is now Crowd Ultra. Just go to crowdultra.com, sign up, and it takes a minute. Luke wants to know, does Trevor Lawrence's injury and shoulder surgery alarm you? No, off-shoulder medical technology in this day and age, based on everything that I've read, uh, it should not be an issue. Phil wants to know, will Mahomes win another Super Bowl before it's all said and done? He's still very young. Uh, He's unbelievably talented. So I would say, yes, he will clearly win another Super Bowl before he retires Barring injury. Wilde wants to know, would you consider the Super Bowl an American holiday? Yeah, I think it is an American holiday. Uh, It's not an official holiday, but an American holiday? Yeah. It's a great question, by the way. 
All right. Uh, Manny wants to know, did Brady just prove Belichick wasn't as important to the Patriots as we had thought? No, absolutely. And I don't know why all of this talk goes on. Uh, Bill Belichick is a phenomenal, great football coach, period. All right. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Jake wants to know, do you view Fournette as a top-tier running back? No, I don't view him as a top-tier running back. I thought he had a great game on Sunday. To me, he's not top-tier. You know, he's good, but he's not top-tier in my opinion. Uh, Martin wants to know, what was the reason for the Super Bowl being so one-sided? Well, the first thing is, I think that Kansas City not having both starting tackles uh, really made it very difficult for their offense. And uh, Tampa was very physical. Uh, They took advantage, knowing that the offensive line was weak. And I did a rant on this yesterday. Offensive tackle is as important as any position in the National Football League. Again, look what happened two weeks ago in the NFC Championship game and Aaron Rodgers and what Tampa was able to do getting pressure. Got to have those offensive tackles. And when you lose one, okay, you know, maybe you can withstand that. When you lose both, uh-uh, you are in big, big trouble. Brad wants to know if I'm a fan of Super Bowl halftime shows. I used to be, not anymore. I think it's just gotten ridiculously uh, crazy. I used to, not anymore. Uh, Christian wants to know, did pulling Durant from the game twice the other night because of COVID protocol seemed dumb to you. Uh, Nothing that is happening right now in terms of the NBA on the court when you're playing basketball and then, you know, you can't at the end of the game, you know, shake hands or anything else. You're playing with the same basketball. You're bumping against each other. You're fouling. You're sweating on each other. A lot of things don't make sense to me. I don't know if I would use the word dumb because I get where the NBA is coming from. They have a billion-dollar business that they're trying to keep up and running. I will use the word odd, all right? Odd. David wants to know, is Kevin Durant looking better than LeBron right now? Mm, you know, again, I, I don't – right now doesn't mean anything to me. You know, I know that LeBron is going to be in the NBA Finals barring injury again, and that's really uh, what is important. It's time for Rant. Time for today's rant. It's brought to you by New Works Plumbing of Sacramento. Locally owned for 20 years for all of your plumbing needs. Just go to newworksplumbing.com. That's N-E-W-W-R-X plumbing.com. Again, plumbing repairs, whatever you need. Just go online, newworksplumbing.com. Again, that's N-E-W-W-R-X wrxplumbing.com. All right, here's something that is absolutely driving me freaking crazy. And it's been happening the last couple of years. Whenever a team wins a Super Bowl, the offensive or defensive coordinator is being talked about as they should be a head coach. I've never understood that. I mean, there are a lot of coordinators that have been great. North Turner, for instance, okay? Phenomenal offensive coordinator. Terrible head coach. You know, I keep on hearing about Todd Bowles and Todd Bowles this and Todd Bowles that. And then they're bringing in race into this. Listen, Todd Bowles, not only a former player in the NFL, he has coached for a long time in the NFL. Okay. He's been a head coach in the NFL with the Jets. Okay. I don't I don't need to hear over and over again that a, a black defensive coordinator did a great job. This is not new to me. Do I think there's a problem in the NFL and a disparity between white and black head coaches, hell yeah, there is. And I think it's a real problem, okay? But this talk about Todd Bowles and, you know, now all of a sudden Todd Bowles is going to get a job as a head coach in the NFL. Why? Because he because he won a Super Bowl as a defensive coordinator and had a great game plan against a team that was without their two starting tackles? And again, I'm not meaning to disparage Todd Bowles here. That's not the purpose of my rant. I'm just tired of hearing black this, black that. How about he's just a hell of a football coach? Can't we go there? I, I don't understand that. Does that now mean Eric Bieniemy, the offensive coordinator of Kansas City, is not a good coach because the Kansas City Chiefs did not score a touchdown in the Super Bowl? I mean, we've been hearing about Coach Bieniemy for the last several years, right? How come he's not a head coach in the NFL? And I listen, I don't have enough knowledge on that. I'm not in the room with interviews when he's interviewing with owners and general managers. I don't have the answer to that question. I know he's a hell of a football coach, all right? And, yes, he happens to be black. Yes, okay? But I don't know why we are continuing to go here in 2021, you know, where we have to point out that – 
you know, Ty Bowles is black and that Eric Bieniemy is black. We get it. We understand. There have been excellent, great black football coaches in the NFL for a long time. Stop it already. Again, yes, there's a disparity and it needs to be fixed at the head coaching level. But Ty Bowles was a head coach. It didn't work out for him in New York. He had his opportunity. Now, that doesn't mean he can't ever be a good head coach. I mean, last time I checked, Bill Belichick bombed out in his first head coaching job. And uh, last time I looked, he's a pretty damn good football coach. So, you know, the circumstances and the situation factors into it. But can we just stop? talking about whether a coach is white or black and because they win a Super Bowl as an offensive or defensive coordinator, all right, whether they are white or black, doesn't necessarily mean they're ready to become an NFL head coach. Can we just stop it and move on with this utter stupid nonsense? There are many excellent coordinators in the National Football League that have had their opportunity to be a head coach, and they fail miserably, all right? It doesn't work out for them. Some people are just better as coordinators than as head coaches. So can we just accept someone doing a great job in a particular year? And again, I go back to Eric Bieniemy. Is he all of a sudden not a head coaching candidate because the Chiefs didn't score a touchdown? We got to stop it with this stupid, utter nonsense. And that's my rant for today. Folks, I really appreciate you joining me on If You Don't Like That. I hope you like Steve Albert as much as I did. Don't forget to check out my video rants over on YouTube if you don't like that with Grant Napier. And if you're listening here, particularly if you're listening via Apple Podcasts, please do me a favor. Just take time to write a comment. It would mean a lot. Again, thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed today's program. Be back with you on Friday. And on Friday... I'm really looking forward to this show as well. I'm going to bring back a voice from the past that used to work with me in Sacramento. That's coming up on Friday. But again, thank you so much for listening to If You Don't Like That with Grant Napier. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.